Well, good morning. Take your Bible. Turn to John chapter 14 as well as Genesis chapter 1. They should be easy to find because Genesis is where? In the beginning. And John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and what? John. So go to verse chapter 14. We're at the tail end of a teaching series called Who Is He? Now let me catch you up. When we talk about who is he, we're trying to understand the nature and the character of God. Many times we have an idea who God is, but most of the time, those ideas and expectations and understandings about God are wrong. Or the other extreme is we have it right, but we only look at one part of who God is. When we understand God in his totality, we understand who God is biblically. This is a multifaceted uh, creator that we worship. Yes, he's loving, but he's also unchanging. Yes, he's unchanging, but yes, he's also wise. Yes, he's wise, but he's also incredibly sufficient. He's also perfect in how he pours out wrath, but yet rescues us from that as we'll deal with grace next week. Now, this morning, we're going to be dealing with a part of God that we all have a, a desire to know better. And it's the part of God in the context of the God that speaks. Who is he is how he speaks in word and deed. All of us have asked God a question before, right? We've asked God why. We've asked God what to do. And we've asked God sometimes in anger, who is he? Y'all been there before? And guys, I want to tell you two little stupid stories about me, all right? Because most of the time when we ask God a question, we do it completely wrong. All of you in this room have had a question trying to figure out what to do in a certain situation or how to get over a certain circumstance, and you've opened up the Bible and pointed at a verse. Y'all ever done that before? Everybody say yes. Most of us have, right? Let me tell you a funny story about us. This is how stupid I am because I believe God speaks to us. How he speaks to us and discerning what that is is important, and, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to put filters on that because sometimes we think God speaks and he really doesn't. I'll give you an example. Sarah Beth and I have been married about two months um, early on in our marriage couldn't sleep one night was really wrestling with a question about God what should I do here what should I do here and I've learned the older that you get two things happen the more complex the questions you know what I'm talking about and the less you care and so <laughs> you with me some of you older people you know what I'm talking about right so I'll never forget I was up one late one night and I was praying Lord just show me what you want me to know and I did the thing that you always do and you shouldn't do because this is dangerous. Lord, just give me a sign. Just tell me. I opened up the Bible, put my finger on the verse. Y'all have done this before, right? And it said in the book of Genesis, Abraham to Abraham, it said, Sarah will have a son. My wife is named Sarah Beth. Lord, are you telling me that we're about to have a baby? I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? That's a dangerous place. We did have a son four years later, but I thought, oh, my gosh. Another time, I was going through South Georgia. I, I went to college at Valdosta State University. And I was really wrestling with a decision. This is before I met my wife. And as I was driving, I had four and a half hours to drive back to school. And I was praying, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Y'all been there before, right? Just really wrestling over that fact. And there's three things that are consistent in South Georgia. Are you ready for this? One is mosquitoes. You're going to have a lot of those. You can't get carried away. Two, it's hot. And it never seems to go away. And three, there's an abundance of wildlife, specifically deer. And I bet I saw a million of them. This is how ridiculous this was. I was like, Lord, if you want me to do this, show me a sign. Specifically, God, give me the sign and show me a deer before I get to Monticello, Georgia. Have you ever driven to Monticello, Georgia? There's only 18 million of them on the side of the road as you go. And guess what I saw? 
a deer. And I thought, oh, God, you've spoken. And you know what? He hadn't. It was just a deer. <laughs> Sometimes we mistake God's voice for what we want in life. Sometimes we mistake God's voice completely. Now, does God work in people when they speak to you? Yeah. You've had that happen before, right? You've had God use someone. Has God worked through a passage of Scripture to speak to you? 100%. However, we've got to develop the, the filters to understand when God is speaking and when he's not. And the thing that we are blessed in in knowing Jesus is that we worship a God who speaks. But, but specifically, he speaks in truth. But what does that look like? And how do we understand it? So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a lot of introduction. And then I'm going to give you two thoughts about how he does speak and then two application steps. Does that sound good to everybody? So I'm going to talk faster than normal. So turn to Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. Now, there are three overarching themes about how God speaks, specifically in truth. The first thing we've got to understand in how God speaks is he always speaks with authority. Now, what do we mean by that? Because most of us don't like authority. As John Cougar said, I fight authority. And for the rest of you people my age, in authority what? Always wins. Some of y'all got it. The thing about authority is that we have to understand God speaks from a position of authority. Why? Because if we believe he's creator, guess what? The creature doesn't get to tell the creator what to do. It's the opposite. Psalm chapter 33, verse 9, it says this. And there's so many passages in Scripture, but we'll deal with this. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it what? Stood firm. God has the authority to do what he wants to do simply because he's God, right? Now, we don't like that sometimes because some of the things he calls us to do, specifically in Scripture, we see as optional and not authoritative. And that would be wrong. Agreed? Because you and I look at God's commandments many times as options. Now, do you ever do this, or is it just me? 20, 30 times a day I do this, right? Is it, you know, is the speed limit sign an option, a suggestion, or is it telling you what to do? It's telling you what to do, right? It's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. When we think about the God that speaks, we ought to understand he has authority to say and do whatever he wants to do. And you're his creature. But there's another facet to this we need to understand. When God speaks, he speaks in absolutes. He speaks in an absolute tone. What do we mean by that? When he tells us something, it is absolutely true. And what's beautiful about this, if we believe that God doesn't change, we studied this a few weeks ago, then that absolute truth doesn't change either, right? That's just logical, agreed? If God is unchanging, his truth is unchanging, and what he said is absolute. Psalm chapter 119, notice what happens here. It says this, all your words are true, and all your righteous laws are what? Eternal. They're forever. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, I've read things in the Old Testament. Let's give you an example here. How many of you guys like pork barbecue? Can I get an amen? You're with me on that. I mean, I have my favorite barbecue restaurants that I go to. And if pork is not on the menu, I don't stay. You with me on that? But when I read in the Old Testament, it says don't eat what? Pork. Well, let's understand that in this context. That was a ceremonial thing for the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, Jesus came, and in Matthew it says Christ came and fulfilled the whole law and kicked those ceremonial things out, and therefore we live in freedom. Some of the rules stay, like don't lie, don't cheat, don't hit your neighbor in the face in Walmart, those types of things. 
but some of them have passed on because Christ has fulfilled that. Make sense? God is absolute in what he says. Third thing we got to understand here is this, and this is where we get to Genesis. Go to chapter 1, verse 3. You're going to see this over and over again. God not only speaks in absolutes, he speaks in authority, he also speaks in power. When he says it, guess what? It happens. Get this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light. And guess what happened? Biblically speaking, there was what? Light. A few, past, a few verses later, in verse 6, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from the water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and so it was sky. Guess what? He spoke it. It happened. I've never had that happen to me. Have you? Sometimes I'd love to go up to my car and go, change your oil. It didn't work. Sometimes I'd like to go up to my children. Give me money. That hadn't happened either. <laughs> God speaks in such a way that he speaks in power over and over and over again. Now, here's the reality of us being human beings and as jacked up as we are. We don't always recognize it. We affirm that as Christians. Agreed? Right? You affirm that God's absolute. You affirm that God's powerful. I affirm that he's in charge. Do I apply it? Not always. When it's convenient, we love to apply that, right? When there's a tragedy in the world like it's happening now, we apply that on our social media streams. Agreed? When we're hurting, we apply that. But what about in our day-to-day -day circumstances where life is really lived? Do we apply that? That is the God who speaks. Authority, absolute, with power. But there's one more facet to this because there's a pattern in Scripture that we sometimes miss that we need to understand. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So far in Genesis chapter 1, what's happened is, is God has said, let there be light, and there was light. God said... Let there be a heavens and the earth. And that happened. God said, let there be fish in the sea. And so on and so forth. It's the entire creative process. He's creating things. He's speaking it to existence. He says, let there be mankind. And there was Adam. Makes sense so far, right? But in chapter 1, verse 28, something else happens. God becomes not only authoritative, but he also becomes an initiator and also invitational. What do we mean by that? Get this, one, chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, and who's he talking about? Adam and Eve, humanity, and he said to them. Now, here's the difference. Do you see the, do you see the difference here? So far in Genesis, in the beginning, God is speaking things into existence. He said, let there be light. Let there be a moon. Let there be a platypus, whatever it may be. But then he goes and says, hey, you. He initiates the relationship. Do you see that? God is the initiator of the relationship he has between mankind and himself, not the other way around. Don't confuse that. And notice what he does here. As he initiates this relationship, we see very, four very important themes that happen. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You got that, right? He gives them a specific commandment. He gives them purpose. And when we read Scripture, one of the themes you'll continually pick up on from Genesis to Revelation is God gives specific commandments to his people. Some of those commandments are somewhat general. It means, you know, love your neighbor as your what? Self. Some of them may be a little bit more specific. But God gives commandments, and does he have the right to do so? Yeah. 
Why? Because he's God, and in being God, he's authoritative, he's powerful, and he speaks in absolutes. Makes sense so far. But then there's the process. There's four themes. Remember that. Now go to the next one. Go to verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that, is, that has fruit with seed in it. That will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for you, and it was so. Now I want you to pick up on this. You can miss this, but don't read so fast. He's given a commandment, and he says, creation, do this. But then he says something else. Go back to verse 29. Then God said, I give you. He's doing something there. Do you see that? And then at the very end of verse 30, skip to that verse, the last four words, and it says, and it was what? So, do you see that? What's happening here? God's given a testimony of who he is and what he can do. Now, he's done so so far in creation, but now he has an audience. He's initiated the relationship. He's given the commandment. And he says, this is who I am. Now, every person in this room has a story, right? Some of our stories are pretty crooked. Let's be real. Some of our stories are broken. All of our stories are warped. But if you know Jesus, there was a point in the story of your life where he stepped in and says, I'm going to do something. And that is your testimony. Agreed? When Christ did. Now, for some of you, when you became a Christian, it was an emotional moment. You were broken, you understood your sin, and you understood your need forgiveness. And God stepped in and saved you, and you were just overwhelmed with emotion. Any of you there? For others of you, it was logical. So I read scripture, I understand that there is a God that it exists, and logically it makes sense it's Jesus, and I recognize that I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven, and therefore I became a Christian. For others of you, let's just be real, it's just me and you talking, it was fake. Now let that sit here for a minute. Is you grew up in a church where mom and dad said get baptized because that's your rite of passage. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not your salvation story. It's when you turn to Jesus personally recognizing you need forgiveness. That's the difference. That's your testimony. It's like the blind man said, I was blind but God did something, and now I what? I see. That's the change. And so when we look at Scripture, we have that same thing. We have that commandment. We have that testimony. And then we dig a little deeper. Go to chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. God took the man and put them in the Garden of Eden and to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly what? Die. You've read that before. But let's understand something here. Let's keep going with the process. There's a commandment. There's a testimony. And then there's a prohibition. Is that don't do this. When you do this, this will happen. And so when we read Scripture, you'll see this all over the place. If you do this, this is going to happen. God gives the people of, his, of, of God his word. Don't do it. Makes sense so far? Now, all of us have messed up in this room. And all of us have suffered the consequences of those mistakes. And we've even suffered the consequences of other people's mistakes. Agreed? 
Because God said there's a natural consequence that happens. But from an eternal perspective, I want you to go back to that verse and understand it in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 again. Specifically verse 17, it says, you will surely what? Die. Now this is the Garden of Eden, the happiest place on earth. It is not Disney World. Everything is perfect. Everything is going perfectly well. There is no hair loss and there is no cancer. There are no arguments. There's marital bliss. Everything, I mean, you have an abundance of food and you can eat as much as you want and you don't get fat. Everything is working out. There's no exercise and there's no money. Sounds pretty good, right? Death had not entered into the equation. But when we understand death from the biblical perspective, two things. One, Adam and Eve had immortality. There's no death there. And Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with God. There's no separation there. And so now we see the evil one slip in in chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And remember, we have four themes. We're getting to the fourth one. Commands, testimony, and prohibition. Get this. Many of us think that the first temptation was to eat from the tree of good and evil, right? The tree of knowledge, right? Wrong. Get this first one. And this goes back to our theme today. The God who speaks, the God of truth. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, here's your first temptation. Did God really what? Say. The first temptation was to question God's truth. It was to question what God was saying, if this was real or not. And what happened next is that our ancestors bought into the lie, ate of the tree, and God fulfilled his promise, and death entered into the world. Now, we made the joke here before that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a long line of people to punch them in the mouth. Because all the chaos that we deal with is because of that one moment. But here's what's fascinating here. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. After all this has happened, there's something, and this is our fourth theme here. Remembering this, at the very beginning, God speaks with absolutes, God speaks with power, and God speaks with authority. And when he speaks, he gives commands, he gives testimony, he gives prohibition. One more thing he gives. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe and your painful labor will give you, uh, you will give uh, birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. And Adam said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit from the tree in which I commanded you, you must not, see, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you and through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Okay, what happens here is this. God has given commands. God has given testimony. God has given pro prohibition. And here's the good part. God's given promise. And when we read scripture, we see his promises over and over again. Now, there's two parts to this promise in Genesis. One, goes back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 where it says death's going into the world and he looks at him and says you're going to die and life on this planet is not going to be easy we would all agree on that right because life ain't easy but here's the, the second aspect of this promise go to verse 15 do not miss this this is the first mention of Jesus in scripture it says I will put enmity between you and the woman in between your offspring and what? 
what? Hers. Now, in Old Testament lineage, as well as New Testament, women didn't have offspring, but men did. Except in this one case. That's why you have a surname. In this one case, God speaks and says, I'm going to put enmity between the offspring of a woman and you, Satan. Who's the only person in Scripture that didn't have a created father? What was his name? It's Jesus. And the promise beginning at, from the very beginning was that when God speaks truth, when God speaks to creation, he promises you a way out of this mess. That is good news for us, right? He said he's given us commandments. He's given us prohibition. He's given us a testimony. And we say, no, I'll buy into the lie. But here's the deal. He fulfills his word by giving us a promise. Now, that's all introduction, and I got five minutes left. Let's go to John chapter 14. We go to the New Testament. And we find Jesus teaching. In, Genesis chapter, in John chapter 13, right before he gets to verse 1 in chapter 14, he's telling the disciples that one day he's going to die. He's predicting his death. And obviously, this is a letdown for the disciples because they had walked around with Jesus but somewhere between 18 months and three years. And during that period of time, they were waiting for Christ to go and reestablish the Jewish kingdom, be the Messiah, rescue them from their sins, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. But yet, they thought their Savior, the Messiah, he's just said, I'm going to die. So I would say that was a depressed, anxious moment for them. Agreed? But get what he says here. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, and you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, remember our themes. Remember the overarching theme. God is absolute. God is powerful. God is authoritative. You got that? Now remember the four themes. What were they? God gives commandment, God gives testimony, God gives prohibition, and God gives promises. We see three of them right here. Go back to it. First of all, he starts out with a command. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, I'm a Christian. I know I came to Christ from early on in life, and I've gone up and down in my faith. Days I've questioned it, days I've lived vibrantly through it. Y'all been there? But there have been times where I'm walking through life and my heart is very much troubled. Y'all? But here's the deal. See how that's connected. Go back to verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. How? Because you believe in God. And if you believe in God, you believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you know there's hope. You follow the logic? You have to know, and then you also have to grow in that. Now, that's the commandment. Here's the testimony. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not what I've told you where I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And then you have the promise. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You see that? Isn't that beautiful? From the very beginning, he's laying the stuff out. Now, all that to say, here's my problem, and this is yours. I doubt that sometimes. God speaks obviously but is what I'm hearing true 
And can I rest my anxieties, my worries, and even my own life on it? Because I struggle. I listen, I listen to podcasts. I like to watch documentaries. And I listen to podcasts. Don't judge me. And it's not crime podcasts for all you weirdos. <laughs> you. Uh, <laughs> hey, let's just talk for a second. For some of you guys that are married, uh, does it bother you that your wife listens to crime podcasts? Because it's like, she knows where to bury the body and get away from it. Uh, anyway, inner thoughts. I probably should keep myself. Uh, get back on track. Listen to a podcast the other day and currently engaging with a book. Uh, the same thing. And, and there's a lot of statistical information that I was absorbing and stuff that I've known, something I didn't know. But did you realize in the last 20 to 30 years, the next generation, there's been over 10 million of the next generation leave the church for good? Now, what does that mean? That means that if you're under 40, your generation, most, or about 10 million, have left the church. That's more than the, all the people that came to know Christ during the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined. That's more people. Now, think through that. Now, we got a lot of things we say, well, this is why. It was because of the music. It was because it was irrelevant. It was because of what's happening in our culture. But really, 10 million people is a lot of people. In what we would call the greatest generation in the 1950s, that's when the church was its largest. Did y'all realize that? Percentage-wise. And since then, it's been a steady decline. COVID even amplified that even more. The average church size in America is less than 70. If you go to a church more than 200, that is a super large church. Now, I know that's hard to put our brains around. We're in the mega church south, but that ain't normal. You follow me on that? 13 to 20 churches a week close their doors for good. And we're losing the next generation completely. More than that, that generation that was there during the 50s and 60s, during the church heyday where we all learned to speak Christianese and sing just as I am 50,000 times, are dying every day. So what does that mean? It means we're in a predicament here. Because like you, your children and your grandchildren are questioning this truth. Now, where does that stem from? I thought it was interesting. They said there's two reasons for this. Number one was the fall of the Soviet Union. Some of you guys remember when the Berlin Wall fell, right? And you remember when communism kind of started to fade into the background. And what has happened is that during that period of time before communism fell, before the Soviet Union ceased to exist, people in the United States equated being a Christian with being a citizen of the United States because we therefore supposedly were a Christian nation. But when communism fell, because communists believe in atheism, and if you said you were an atheist, then people labeled you as a communist, which means you were probably a bad American. When communism fell, it opened the door to be atheists again. And so that was not connected to your citizenship. Interesting, right? Then they go on to say, something happened in the 1990s that has affected every person in this room, and some of you are being affected with by, by now who are listening online and who are scrolling through social media here. It's called the Internet. Good things happen on the Internet, right? I learned a lot on Wikipedia. I don't remember the last time I wrote a check. There's some bad things too, right? You put these two things together, and you can put the inability of the church to connect with the next generation, what do you have? You have tens of millions of people who are questioning if this is true or not, as they should. And so as I struggle with this in my own heart, 
I know I'm not alone, but I also know I'm not alone as it pertains to Scripture because God in His foreknowledge provided an example for us. I want you to go back to Scripture here. This is my favorite of the disciples because I feel like I relate to this guy so much. Now, some of you might like Simon Peter. Some of you may like, you know, Levi or Matthew. Some of you may like John. I like this guy. He's named Doubting Thomas. He's the one that doubts Jesus' resurrection, but we also see the formation of his doubt here in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? What a stupid question. But I relate to that completely, don't you? This guy had walked with Jesus for almost three years, had saw him walk on water, provide loaves and fishes for over 5,000 people, and experienced all types of miracles that we can't even fathom. But yet, he asked Jesus, how do we get there, Lord? I love that question because I feel very much affirmed in my own questions. And how Jesus answers this is a beautiful thing. And then we're going to wrap it up in about three minutes. Yeah, maybe about 30. Here we go. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Get this. We've got our overarching affirmations of who God is and how he speaks. Authoritative, powerful, and absolute. We have our themes. Commandment. We have prohibition. We have testimony. We have promise. Y'all follow that? All that just sinks up in that one verse. Get it? First of all, God speaks to us today in 23 like he spoke to us then, and that's instructionally how we should do things. Now get what happens. Go back to the verse. First of all, he starts out by saying, I am, which is a name in the Jewish, Jewish context for God. And so he's proclaiming to the people there who are listening, I am God. And if I am God, I speak authoritatively, absolute, and with power. Got it? He's God. He's saying it. Then he goes on to say, I am the way, meaning I'm giving you complete and total direction here. I'm showing you the direction, Thomas. But to affirm that direction even more, to give you that direction even more, I'm going to proclaim two things about me, and I'm going to prove it. One, I'm truth, meaning that you can trust the direction I'm sending you down. John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is what? True. And he goes on, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the what? True God, the eternal God. Later on in different parts of Scripture, he affirms that. Now, for us to say that Jesus is true can be an offensive statement to other people, right? We'll get to that. But when we say that God is speaking absolutes and we say that Jesus is true, then we have absolutely isolated every other religious belief system on the planet and said all those are false. How could we do such a thing? That's a terrible thing to do, isn't it? You're not being very compassionate. You're not opening yourself up to other people. You don't love other people if you're saying what they, don't, what they believe is untrue. The most loving thing I can do if I wanted you to come to dinner at my house is to give you the right directions. Right? The most loving thing I could do if you got in a terrible car accident 
was to put you in an ambulance going to the hospital, not the morgue. Agreed? And the most loving thing Christ can do for you is to give you an absolute. If he gives you an absolute, it's not condemning, it's, it's, it's incredibly loving. And if you present Christ as an absolute, it's not condemning, it's incredibly loving. And then he goes, one more thing. He says, I am life. Life is in him. John chapter 1, verse 4. We'll deal with this. There's so many passages of Scripture, and we're producing a podcast to go along with this tomorrow morning, so look for it at 8.30. John chapter 1, verse 4. Get this. You know the way. Um, John chapter 1, verse 4. Go a couple pages over here and understand what's happening. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of all what? Mankind. What Christ is saying here is this. Let's just sum it up. He said, I'm instructing you because I'm God. I'm loving you by showing you a way. I'm affirming that by telling you it's true, and there's no other way. And I'm blessing you by giving you life that's beyond here. And I'm solving that problem of death that you experienced in Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. You follow that? That's instructional. The last part is that God speaks invitationally to you. He invites you to be a part of that. Now, here's the issue. Do you accept the invitation? Now, you're good Southerners, right? You've eaten the stale cookies at VBS, Vacation Bible School. You drank the watered-down Kool-Aid. Maybe you grew up Catholic. You were confirmed. Of course you accept the invitation. Listen, has it changed your life? Second question, is it your life? That's the invitation because go back to John chapter 14, verse 6. It says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. Is it? Has it changed you? So, with all that said and done, we ask ourselves this question. What about other religions? What about my experiences in the past? You know, I walked an aisle. I stood in front when I was confirmed. You know, maybe you're, some of you are like Taylor. You were baptized and then came to know Jesus. What about all that stuff? What about morality? What about rules? What about other religions? Last thought here, and we're going to be out. It says this in John chapter 14, verse 6. There's one very important word used three times in that verse that you should not miss. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Christ says the word the three times, thus taking every other pathway away from us so that we focus on one truth and one place to get life and one place to find our way. Follow that? That is the most loving thing he can do for you other than die on the cross. And it's a beautiful synopsis of how God speaks. So your filter, your filter is understand that when you're seeking God's word, is it instructional? Does it line up with scripture? And is it invitational? Is it calling you to follow Christ in a more fervent way? and do what he calls you to do. Two steps of application, and we'll get out of here. One, if you want direction, you gotta find your truth and life in Jesus. And some of you have never done that. It's been very much a religious thing. I get it, I've been there. It's been very much, hey, I did what my parents told me to do. What, you know, no, but has it changed you? Is it your testimony? Is it your story? Have you come to Christ? Two, are you growing in Christ? And you have to grow... God, you cannot grow spiritually apart from Scripture. 
You cannot, listen, I'm going to say that over you. You cannot grow in your relationship with Christ apart from Scripture. You've got to get in the Word. Now, some of you have a lot of questions about God's Word. Where do I start? How do I read it? How do I know it's true? We've got a 30-minute podcast to deal with that tomorrow morning about how it came to be, why it's put together, why it's God's Word, and then how to engage it. Y'all with me on that? We don't have time to deal with that this morning. But you've got to engage it. And so for the believer, here's your challenge. Get in the Word. For those of you that are struggling, you've got to know Jesus. And so this morning, if you're struggling with that reality of knowing Jesus, I want to encourage you to do one of three things. One, text in the phrase, I need Jesus to the number on the screen. That comes to me, and we'll have a conversation tomorrow. Two, fill out the Connect card that's in your folder, and check the box, I need to be baptized, or I want to know Jesus. You can hand it to me as you leave. You can take it to guest services, whatever you need to do. Or three, I'm going to be over here for about two minutes to my left to pray with you, to talk with you, and help you start that process. And so you just make your way out of the seat during the song, and we'll talk. But take those steps to understand that we serve, thankfully, a God who speaks, right? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, change us, guide us, and direct us. Overwhelm us with truth. Overwhelm us with peace. Overwhelm us with the way of following you. And may...